From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Here's a recording you weren't meant to hear. A guy from New York, a percussionist, went to perform in this opera in Italy. While he was there, he met this woman, who was a graduate student who was writing about the opera for her thesis. She took him on a tour of Rome on the back of her scooter. He met her friends. They hung out. One thing led to another. They had this week together. And when he got home to New York, he didn't want it to be over. So he made her these tapes. Mm. (laughs) Uh, It's scary. It's scary how much I'm thinking of you. But it's good. It makes me happy. Even if you're not here, I feel happy to, to think about you and to know that you're existing somewhere. When you're really in love and other people overhear you, I think it's hard not to sound a little over the top. That's what I like about these recordings. The feeling in them is so direct. Everything is so raw. And so today, we're going to try something completely different on our radio show. Every story in the show is made out of tapes like this one. Every story is made from tapes that were intended for an audience of one. Someone, somewhere, made somebody else a tape. We listen in. All of us. I have to say, it's kind of an amazing show because of that. Act one, we hear the greatest phone message in the world. The absolute greatest. Act two, we have a special effects story. In that act, we use the power of audio technology to turn someone who stutters into someone who no longer stutters so we can deliver a message to one man in Idaho. Act three, a war story. In fact, the story of a soldier in the first Persian Gulf War who made tapes for his wife during battles until he accidentally recorded this incident, this violent incident that haunted him for years. And Act 4, a love story. In that act, we return to the guy who you just uh, heard from a minute ago, a man trying to sustain a relationship that spans oceans, all with a little cassette tape. And so without further ado, let us turn now to Act 1. This um, Act 1 is the story of the greatest phone message of all time. Some people see it that way anyway. You may judge for yourself. A quick warning that there is one famously nasty word in this story that occurs exactly seven times. Count them yourself. But do not worry, we beep the word every single time. Producer Jonathan Goldstein tells the tale. The first thing you should know about my friend Josh is that he calls me a bitch squealer. Now, bitch isn't the bad word you're going to be hearing in this story. And that's because it's referring to an actual dog, a fenced-in security dog that barked at me and Josh while we were out walking one night. And while my scream may have been louder that evening, Josh's scream was definitely higher pitched, which to my mind means Josh should rightfully be called the bitch squealer, while perhaps I should be called something like bitch bellower or bitch loud crier. Just the same, quit your bitch squealing is what Josh says to me when I ask him to please change the station on the car radio or to stop crowding the armrest in the movie theater. The other thing to know about Josh is that he thinks of himself as an idea man, and he always refers to his ideas as pure gold. So a few years ago, when I first started doing stories on the radio, I would call him up and ask him if he had any story ideas, and he always did. The thing was, most of them involved hot dog eating contests and all nude car washes. One time Josh talked to a French-Canadian waitress who used the words diggy-do as a conjunctive phrase, as in, my mother, she gave birth to me in Lac Saint-Louis, and diggy-do, I'm in Montreal. Josh tried to convince me that this semantically innovative young woman was most definitely worthy of a 40-minute interview on national radio. Just the other day, Josh was telling me about this really funny phone message that he heard back in his college days, 
and how I should definitely do a radio show about that. He swore to me that it was the defining moment in his class's campus life that year. Now, how's a person supposed to believe something like that? I mean, I, I can imagine you really liking this message. Oh, I see, I see. But you see, I can't imagine it being the kind of thing that, you know, was that like— That your sedate NPR audience would appreciate? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, it sounds like you got a kick out of it at the time. But I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine it being like an atomic bomb that hit the campus or something. Yeah. See, this is clearly a, another example of, of the failure of your imagination. How many times have I given you ideas that you have uh, naysayed? How many times have I given you gold standard ideas? Josh What's yells at me, me a lot, funny to America. especially when he yet? thinks I'm not taking his ideas seriously. I'm giving you the when we go out to eat, he yells at me loud enough to make the other patrons turn around and look at us. Sometimes, though, he'll get all unexpectedly silent and just stare out the restaurant window and then turn to me and say something like, wouldn't life be better if there was a big old pig sitting out there by the fire hydrant? Why can't life be more like that? But anyway, to get back to the phone message, the one Josh heard in college. I'm telling you about it not to demonstrate what a slightly misguided, colorful character Josh is, but to chart with honesty the unfairness of my preemptive bitch squeals of doubt. I went to Columbia University in the early 90s, okay? Late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. When I was there, they had this phone system. I'll just give you a little bit of background, all right? And then I'll cut to the chase. Um, they had this system there called the Rome system, Rome yeah. phone system, R-O-L-M. And... You could forward messages to people, okay? You could forward messages to everyone on campus if you wanted, okay? Sort of like, like, like a, a precursor to the internet. Yes, like a precursor to the internet. Thank you, Mr. Current Affairs yeah. guy. All right, so, um, so it, it, was just, it, it was an amazing utility. People could forward all kinds of crazy messages. Yeah. And so one day, there was this guy named Fred, okay? Yeah. And he got this message. Well, his mother left him a message on his answering machine. Okay, and yeah. he forwarded it to, I don't know, maybe one or more of his friends. And his friends turned around and did a Brutus thing. They stabbed him in the back, and they forwarded this message across campus uh, to everyone, okay? So, you want to hear the message? Mm -hmm. All right. So, he prefaced it by saying— Wait, you, you have know, it? You have the message? I do not have the message. I have the message in my head. I'm telling you a story, all right? Okay. All right. So— uh, the mess he, he prefaced it by by some kind of sad little lead in in a little voice he was like I, th I think you'd, you'd appreciate hearing this message from my mother okay and then the message play this was the entirety of the message uh, and I'm gonna do the voice for you as best I can you ready yeah all right oh sorry uh, more background he apparently he had, he had had a heart he, he was not a hit with the ladies Fred okay Th that's this is what I was led to understood led to understand okay <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if this is true or not okay uh, but he had managed to score a date to go see The Little Mermaid of all movies, okay? The Little Mermaid, okay? Yeah. Uh, so this is the message his own mother, okay? His blood relation leaves for him. Yeah. And I quote, <clears throat> You and The Little Mermaid can both go f*** yourselves. The books you wanted, they're not here. They must be in La Jolla. I'm not going to wait up all night for you. Goodbye. That's the entirety of it, all right? Yeah. That, that's the message that his mother left him. That's correct. You catch that part? Yeah. You and the Little Mermaid can both go <laughs> yourselves. I love you, son. Okay? That's gold. But, what, 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 then, what, no, hold on. Yeah. Then, are you, you going to listen? Yes. All right. Then somebody took it. I don't know. Some 
evil mixmeister genius took it and 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 remixed it into a 12 inch dance version. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know, you and the Little Mermaid, La Jolla, La Jolla. Yourselves, yourselves. Do not hear the book. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. And there's other people who heard, who who remember it. Are you are you even listening to a word I just told you? <laughs> this was the uh, the producers of its day. Okay, it, it, it was everyone heard about it. Everyone knew it. Everyone had an opinion about it. Every single person who attended Columbia that year would I guarantee you they would know what what I'm talking about. I still didn't believe him, but just for the hell of it, I phoned the Columbia Alumni Magazine to see if there was anyone there who might remember anything about the Little Mermaid message. I ended up speaking to someone who not only attended Columbia in the early 90s and remembered the message, but just like Josh had, he actually quoted it to me, the whole message. You and the Little Mermaid can both go yourselves. I can't find the books. They must be in La Jolla. I'm not going to wait up all night for you. Goodbye. The guy then became so excited at the thought of someone doing serious research about the message that he offered to use the Columbia database to look up every Fred that might have graduated around that time. No matter how long it took, he said, it'd be worth it if I could track down some recording of the message and allow him to hear it again. I called other Columbia students from that period, and every one of them reacted the same way to the message. Like this guy. Ben Feldman, now an entertainment lawyer. Hello. Uh, is this Ben? Yes. Um, I have two words for you. Little Mermaid. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the funniest call I've ever received. Well, you and the Little Mermaid can go to hell. <laughs> A few days later, Josh called me back. He'd found out Fred's last name from his older brother, who it turns out graduated the same year as Fred. Josh said that Fred's last name was Schultz, and I told Josh that this was great news, and Josh told me to shut my squeal hole, which I did. So I called Fred Schultz, and it turns out that he had recorded the original message and still had a copy of it, a copy which I am now going to play for you. Remember, this is a phone message that was forwarded from one person to the next, each person re-prefacing the previous prefaces as it made its way from one voicemail message box to the next. Received at 4.20 p.m. Friday. Guys, I have never heard a phone mail message like this one. Listen to the first person. You are going to die. No, seriously, this is the funniest one of all of them. All right, here it is. These giddy introductory messages continue for two and a half minutes each one revving up the impending drama, acting as a kind of stage curtain that opens onto another curtain, and yet another one still, each one teasing you with the tantalizing proximity of the main stage about to be bathed in the spotlight. Okay, I've gotten like 95 phone messages in the last two days, but this is the funniest. This is gonna blow you away. This makes the other ones look like chop liver. And then finally, the chain of deferral ends with the very first forwarded student's solemn pronouncement. Um, there, there comes a time in life when, uh, when we hear the greatest phone mail message of all time, and, well, here it is. Uh, you have to hear it to believe it. 
how you get the kick out of this message from my mother. Hi, Fred. You and the Little Mermaid can go f*** yourselves. I told you to stay near the phone. I can't find those books. You have other books here. It must be in La Jolla. Call me back. We're not going to stay up all night for you. Goodbye. These days, Fred Schultz lives in Venice Beach, California. He plays in a band, he skateboards, and he pretty much seems happy. When he sent me the recording of the Little Mermaid message, he also included burnt incense and a CD of his band's soundtrack for a film about cannibalism called Eat Me. Here's a clip. Fred's the kind of guy who, when the subject gets onto future plans, will tell you he's thinking pretty seriously about moving onto a boat. When I ask him about the phone message from his mom, he says that from the moment he got it, he knew he was sitting on something big. The question then became, what was he going to do with it? I did sit down and stress and think about it for like an hour or two. I debated whether to send the message out to anyone, and then I sat down and listened to music and just thought about it, re-listening to the message and just thinking, should I send this along or just... uh, let it die, kill it, hit a race, you know? But Fred decided not to hit a race, and he explains his mother's cryptic message this way. He'd called looking for an old-school notebook. She said she'd search for it, but only if he'd wait by the phone while she did this special favor for him. But did he stay by the phone? No, he did not. As for The Little Mermaid, this was the one thing Josh was completely wrong about. My whole life, I have had a thing about mermaids. And dolphins, but mermaids. When you love mermaids that much, and dolphins, you don't keep that to yourself. You don't hide that. My outgoing message, first it had Ariel from The Little Mermaid singing Part of Your World, singing, you know, like, part of your world, what would I give if I could live out of these waters? And then um, then I jump on and say, hi, please leave a message for me in The Little Mermaid. And then you hear beep. Now put yourself in his mother's shoes. To hear Joan Schultz, Fred's mom, tell the story, that outgoing message was like a call to arms. I hear the Little Mermaid music, and he said, Sorry, I can't answer you now. Please leave a message for me and the Little Mermaid. Well, that's all I had to hear. I was so infuriated and so incensed that without even thinking, and I never, ever say this word, I said, Fred, you and the Little Mermaid can both go f*** yourselves, and I slammed the phone down. So late that night, studying in his dorm room for finals, Fred finally decides to forward the message to his friend Jeff. Then Fred goes to bed, and by the next morning, he wakes up to discover that just like one of those guys in one of those movies, his life has suddenly become forever changed. My message machine was blinking that all ten messages that it accepts are filled, and they were all filled with people, like, chains of, like, 20... It had already gone around to say each chain had hit 20 or 30 people. Like, how many how many people heard it o- over the course of the night? Hundreds. Hundreds had already heard it in the middle of the night. Over the course of how many hours? Like, four hours. What was then to follow for the Schultzes was nothing short of campus-wide celebrityhood. Women ran up to Fred and hugged him. Men envied him for his ability to inspire that much raw, transparent hostility in his mother. The phone message was so popular that, like a hit TV show, it spawned spin-offs. Other messages circulated with people commenting on the original. As a history major, I think we've got to put this into a class struggle perspective. His mother represents... Well, from a political science standpoint, 
I would say that both Fred and his mother are products of the political system. I feel that Mrs. Schultz's sexual desire for her son Fred is manifest. And Josh was even right about the dance remix version of the message. And the Little Mermaid can go f*** yourself. And the Little Mermaid can go f*** yourself. yourself. Although no official at Columbia could confirm this next claim, virtually everyone I spoke to who graduated Fred's year remembers this as a point of fact. The popularity of the Little Mermaid yielded message threads that were too long for the new voicemail technology to handle, and so the messaging service for the whole of Columbia crashed. It goes further still. Fred's mother's message went on to become the most crowd-pleasing musical number from the year-end Varsity show, a time-honored all-male production that goes back to Columbia alumni Rodgers and Hammerstein in the early 1900s. The choreographed routine involved a kick line of hairy-legged men in seashell brassieres and mermaid tails. Steve Nadick, the show's lyricist, dug out the words and favored me with a few select lines. Oh, here it is. Look at that. But I don't even know if this was the final version because I see some handwritten notes on the side. It starts off, uh, We beautiful creatures inhabit the sea, fish women frolicking frivolously. Although no one said that we'd have to enjoy ya, it still could be worse. We might be in La Jolla. And we sang in La Jolla as Handel's Messiah. So it's time to decide what you might want to do. We're not going to wait up all night for you. Goodbye. As even the most casual viewer of VH1's Behind the Music knows, fame like this doesn't come without a price. When Fred's mother came to New York for her son's graduation, she experienced the darker side of superstardom. On Broadway, in restaurants, in the shops there, they would say things like, that's Fred's mother, that's the Little Mermaid. And I was mortified. Wherever we were, people would point and laugh and snicker. So she just made it her job at that point to just walk up to any random group of people and just start saying, you don't understand, I never use the F word. He provoked me, he provoked me. So she felt that that was her you know, responsibility to clear her name to at least let them know she never curses. Before my message came along, the most, the funniest message they had sent around was something like other kids' mothers begging them not to forget to use their rubbers in the rainy season. Here's an example of what Joan Schultz is talking about, one of those feel-good homesy messages. This is a message from Huey Hockman's grandparents making sure he was taking care of his cold. Mine was so far and above that that they won't even go back to the old one. Do you take a certain level of pride in that? I guess so. <laughs> in a strange way, yes. The Little Mermaid message was everything Josh said that it was. And now that I spoke with everyone about its glory, there was really only one more person left to talk to. What do you want? I, uh, I made some calls to Columbia. I spoke to some people who, who went to school the same time that you did. And yeah. yes, I did. And, and diggy-doo, you were right. It was all true. The, the message made a, a, a great impact. Wow. Thanks, John. Um, listen, what a bastard you are. I, I gave you gold. Don't you understand? Anyway, you're missing the point that I, what I'm saying is I, I, I'm saying that I, I apologize because, because you were right. 
I diggy don't give a rat's ass. I'm going to read to you a piece of the script that I've written that I'm thinking I might actually end this whole story with, okay? Because I, I, want, to get, I want to get some of your feedback, okay? Oh, I'm ready. I would say something to the effect of, and so a recording intended for one person unintentionally became the beloved property of thousands. And in so happening, the message went from being what might have been considered a rather tragic personal artifact that spoke of dysfunction to becoming a triumph of contemporary American humor. What is that? That's public radio wussy talk. Be a man. No, a, a, a part of that whole statement is that I'm actually saying to you, you were right and I was wrong. All right, whatever. If you want to talk that fancy talk, you do your, you do your thing, all right? But, but, but don't drag me into your, well, your, your serious voice nonsense. And, and you get to speak in this stentorian tone like, and then America laughed at this inadvertent piece of comedy. I'm John Goldstein. <laughs> Jonathan Goldstein broadcasts his bitch squeals these days as host of the CBC's program Wiretap, which you can hear on some public radio stations in this country and also find on the internet. His friend Josh is a regular contributor to the show. Act two, special effects story. When the story was recorded, Kevin Murphy was a college student in Idaho. And normally, if he was moderately relaxed... He talked like this. Not too long ago, a few of my friends and I were hanging out in my dorm room watching TV. But using the editing gear that we use to edit all of the sound on our radio show, we can take out the stutters, the pauses, the repeats. We can make Kevin sound different from how he has ever talked in his life. So he sounds like this. Not too long ago, a few of my friends and I were hanging out in my dorm room watching TV. Kevin was interested in using this powerful technology to record a message for one man at one business who's been bothering him. Here it is. This recording is for the pizza pipeline in Moscow, Idaho. Not too long ago, a few of my friends and I were hanging out in my dorm room watching TV. Same old stuff, nothing new. As college students, when hunger calls, we call for pizza. I pick up the phone behind me. I've got the coupon book out. Decide to go for the $10.99 special, drinks and crazy bread included. I dial the number. This is when the beast takes over. Anxiety climbs with every ring of the phone. This is what I feel whenever I have to call you up, Mr. Pizza Man. I've dealt with my stutter every second of my life. Is it too much to ask for you to deal with it for a couple of minutes? You interrupt, you cut me off, you speak as if I'm this nuisance to your day. Well, today I've saved you this inconvenience. I've edited out all my stutters and pauses to make it easier for you. That is what you want, isn't it? When my anxiety has reached its peak by the third ring, I hear you bellow. Hello. I attempt to respond, but nothing comes out. This is the most difficult point in a phone call for stutters, getting past the point of being a suspected prank caller. Hello? You say again, impatiently. 
I still can't get a sound out. Please don't hang up on me. Please stay with me. Then it finally pops out. My name is Kevin I. Sutter. I'd like the 1099 special with pepperoni. There's no response. I fear I've lost you. Are you there? I ask. My friends act as though paying attention to the TV. You finally respond. Uh, yeah. Thank God, I think. I got him. Hook, line, and sinker. From here on out, all I gotta do is reel him in. But then you ask what kind of drinks we want. Oh no, I didn't even think of this. Now I've got to tell you to hold on. That has an H sound in it. I hate H's. They're always a killer. They start but do not end. They drain my lungs' air capacity. But I finally get it out and ask everyone what kind of drinks they want. All Cokes. It's easy enough. Oh no. Oh no. I don't have any cash. This means I'm going to have to put it on my bank card. That is one heck of a lot of numbers. I break the bad news to you and I can hear the oh crap in the silence of your voice. You carry on with this curt, annoyed voice. You obviously couldn't be bothered by such a nuisance. To think I would have the nerve to call you and waste so much of your valuable time? If you knew what I go through, Mr. Pizza Man, I'm sure you wouldn't act this way. You know, Ira, I don't think this is working. Turn off that editing equipment. It's not for me. Stuttering is a part of my life. Without it, I'm not myself. Okay. You see, you see, one thing that makes it tricky about stuttering, Mr. Pizza Man, is when I'm afraid I'm going to stutter, it makes me stutter more. So one way, so one, so one way I can actually stutter less is by forcing myself to stutter now and then. It really, it relieves the tension. So, if you can relax, Mr. Pizza Man, and let me stutter, I'll take less of your time. But I'd appreciate a little more consideration. consideration. Sincerely, your loyal customer, Kevin Murphy. Kevin Murphy from Idaho State University. He asked us to mention, and we're glad to mention, the National Stuttering Association. He says contacting them changed his life, led him to learn how to handle his stuttering. Their web address, www.westutter.org. Coming up, people recording love and people recording war. In a minute, from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Most weeks on our program, we invite writers and reporters to put together stories on various topics. Today we are trying something completely different. Every story in the show today is built out of tapes 
that were made for just one person. Not for a national radio audience. Recordings made for just one person. And we have arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, War Story. During the first Persian Gulf War, back in 1991, John Brassfield was an Army scout. That meant that uh, he and three other guys would drive out ahead of everyone else in their unit. They were in a Humvee, which is light-skinned, no real armor, one big gun on it to defend themselves, and some radio equipment. And what they would do is they would drive out, they would spot the enemy, they would call in bombs and troops and tanks on the positions that they spotted. And he took along a little cassette recorder to make tapes for his wife. And I had I made the tapes in case uh, I was killed, that my family might know what happened to me in those last few moments, what, what actually took place. And uh, maybe if I didn't die instantly, I'd be able to say goodbye to him. And so, and so when would you record? Uh, I would record any time I thought a uh, significant event was going to take place. Uh, if I felt like we were getting ready to go into a battle or something had already started, I might push the record button and go ahead and uh, get the tape rolling. Well, let's go through some of these. Um, let me ask you to explain what, for example, is happening in this one. You never want to go through this. You never want to go through this. What is this? Where are we? Um, this was uh, basically the first artillery attack that uh, I had set through. Uh, we were sitting under a pretty intense artillery barrage. And I was just basically telling my wife, and I had a small son at the time, that uh, basically you never want to go through this type of fighting or conflict. Uh, it was pretty scary at the time. Now, you had, uh, you had trained for this kind of thing. How was how actually being in the real thing different from the training? Well, they say train as you fight, uh, and uh, I guess it's a lot louder. <laughs> We had, uh, we had done simulations of this where they have uh, small TNT charges that they explode around you while you're doing your training, but nothing like the real thing coming down and just kind of shaking your nerves up. Now, you don't really say that much to your wife on most of the tapes. Usually it's just long stretches of bombs going off. Let me play another one and ask you to just explain uh, who is talking in this. I got my tape recorder on right Really? Yeah. Damn, I didn't think of that. Uh, this is uh, one of my friends, uh, Frank Carlson. And uh, we had just uh, moved on to what's called a screen line. And then it's our job to report any enemy that would come through our position. And we're just having a conversation. Uh, basically, we've stopped, we're resting, having a conversation about uh, some events that took taken place uh, earlier that day. I tell you what was awesome was when we were on the road, we stopped and we fired that tow. I almost ran over two guys. They were laying on the road. On the road? Yeah. I didn't see them. They, they were like this. If I hadn't have seen them, I would have run over them. And so in that situation, is there just a lot of just sitting there and just, you know, chewing the fat? Uh, basically, at that point in time, there's nothing we could do. Um, we had put ourselves out in the open and felt about as secure as you could uh, feel in that type of situation. And we were just going about business as normal, waiting for this to all pass by. And are there tanks between you and the enemy? No. No, we were the lead element. Uh, there would have been us between the tanks and the enemy. 
And your your weapon, the, the the weapon mounted on your vehicle, could it shoot back at them, or was it too far away for that particular weapon? No, much too far away. And so you're just sitting there without any kind of armor on you, just sitting there waiting. Yeah, sitting out in the middle of the desert, having a conversation, um, just kind of waiting for the next order to either move forward or, or call it quits for the night. That does not sound like a, a very pleasant job. It's really hard to relay your combat experiences of what you went through to a person that has not been in that situation before. Uh, when you're actually in the battle, you had this immense fear of being killed. It just felt like when I was sitting through those artillery attacks, I just knew at any second one of those artillery rounds was going to land in my lap and kill me. That's just what it felt like. They're exploding all around you, and you just have this immense terror that the next one that goes off, you're not even going to know it's there, it's going to blow you to bits. And then you would go in and you would gauge these guys that were firing at you. You would destroy them and you'd be elated. They died. You didn't. You know, you're alive. All right. And then you'd move on to the next little conflict. And then you'd be back down in the, the pits of fear of, you know, you, you're just going to die on this. And then you get through and you destroy them and you're elated again. It was just an emotional roller coaster going through that, you know. And about the only people I could really cite soldiers that have been in the same situation would probably be a uh, victim of a violent crime that has gone through that fear of uh, they just know that they're going to die because that person standing on the other side of the gun is just going to pull the trigger. And then when they make it out of that, the elation that they feel, I'm alive, you know? I've come to the conclusion, if you can hear their artillery, you're still alive. <laughs> is that incoming? Yeah. Is that there? The last round you heard where it kind of shut the tape recorder down exploded right behind us. They were just kind of filling around for us where we were, and they had us pretty much, we'd been sitting in the same location for a while. What's it like for you to hear these tapes? Uh, it gives me an adrenaline rush. It kind of brings me back uh, to the to the battle. Uh, it's, sometimes it's more than I really um, care to think about because it, it brings back a lot of aspects that uh, the mind has kind of forgotten and um, has done that for a reason. And uh, that's one reason why you were hesitant uh, to talk to us, that your wife, your wife uh, was concerned about you listening back to these tapes and thinking through all this again. Well, for a couple of years after the Gulf War, I had trouble sleeping and had nightmares, and she didn't want that stuff to re resurface. Did your wife eventually listen to these tapes that you originally made for her? Uh, no, she's, she's not listening to those. Could you talk about the impulse that made you want to make the tapes? that you wanted her to have a tape if something would happen to you, a tape of the moment that it happened. I think it's tough. Uh, as a soldier, I've dealt with uh, friends dying and, and death, and I think it's the not knowing uh, of the family members that is the, uh, the, the, the bad thing about it. Um, even if, even if uh, what had taken place, even though it wasn't pleasant, that answers a lot of questions. Now, on February 27th in 1991, you made some recordings. Let me just ask you to explain 
uh, what's going on in this first one? Well, what had happened is uh, we were on a screen line again, and our tanks and Bradley's had stopped to refuel. This was something that happened about every two to two and a half hours. We happened to be setting, uh, part of us happened to be setting across a major highway that ran between uh, Basra and Baghdad. And what was happening is the Iraqi forces were retreating out of Basra to Baghdad. And we just happened to be right in the middle of it at that, that point in time. And these were vehicles. They were buses, trucks, um, what we would call light-skinned vehicles or um, vehicles that we could engage and destroy very easily. Uh, so we, we could actually stop these vehicles on the road, and that's what we started doing. Um, and we got to a point of about 200-plus uh, prisoners hmm. uh, that we were taking. Now, the prisoners are just they're just sitting there on the ground, basically in the middle of uh, you know where this road is. Is that, the, is that the deal? Exactly. We had stopped them on the road and had taken them out, and we were, we were I guess if you want to call them processed them, we had taken their weapons away from them and, and done whatever we needed to do to neutralize them. And they were giving up very easily. Uh, they had the they had no will to fight left in them. Um, and when the task force was done, when they had refueled and uh, uh, rearmed or whatever they needed to do, we got the call to go ahead and move out. Well, we had communicated the location of the prisoners back to the battalion command net. The problem with this is we have radios on our vehicles, but not everybody has the radio to the same frequency. So typically what would happen is the battalion commander would have a battalion command frequency where he would have his commanders up on that frequency. Right, so the commander knows everything that you're saying. He That's knows. correct. Basically, we left the prisoners by themselves with no weapons setting out in the middle of the desert, expecting that the battalion command that would put out that there were prisoners there. Now, I don't know if this was ever put out or not. I can't. Yeah. But as these... Um, as the infantry moved up and became came into visual range of the prisoners, the infantry began opening fire. Now, what you hear on my radio is a call from one of the scouts that was left behind saying, I hope they know what a Humvee looks like because uh, he was afraid of being hit by, by friendly fire. He saw the rounds coming down. He did, yeah. yes. I never saw the rounds coming down. Vehicles continued to come down the road, and instead of uh, processing prisoners, uh, the Bradleys have quite a bit of range on them. They were engaging these vehicles and destroying them. It, it was it was not a fair fight. Why, why are we shooting at these people when they're not shooting at us? I know. They want to surrender. F***ing armored vehicles, and they don't have to blow them apart. Now that's you? That, that was me speaking there, and I was agreeing with the, uh, the platoon sergeant, Sergeant Mulek, uh, about these guys wanting to surrender. Um, we've got armor going up against light-skinned vehicles, trucks, buses, whatever, that were carrying people back and forth. Uh, didn't feel that there was any need uh, to be killing these people because they didn't have any fight left in them. Yeah. All we had to do was take prisoners. See those guys toasted in the back of that truck? We go by? Man. I was talking about the vehicles that were coming down the road. Vehicles continued to come down the road, and uh, didn't feel that there was any need for the uh, the loss of life at that point in time. Why? Why? 
Why do they shoot them? They don't have to kill them. I know, they don't. It's a light-skinned vehicle. Now, like that one we killed, I understand that. That could kill us like oh, yeah, that. Running, they had weapons. They had, they had to do that. That, that vehicle had to be killed. But these trucks that are full of people, they don't have to kill them. I, I felt that uh, at that point in time, if we would have set up a roadblock, that we could have processed Iraqi prisoners all day, and there was no need for the necessary taking of human life. Well, this means these guys don't want to fight. You saw the equipment we blew up. They could have wasted us. They're coming down the road. Tell them to engage. Why don't you tell them, sir, that they're willing to surrender? You're in here saying it's murder. Tell the commander that they're willing to surrender. Did anyone tell the commanders that, they, that these guys were probably willing to surrender? Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't recall if we did or not. I'm. I'm sure that the uh, platoon leader did make some reference that these guys didn't have any fight left in them, but I couldn't tell you if that was actually said or not. Um, it just felt like we were doing the wrong thing. Now, since then, you, you had a lot more combat experience. This is, this is still pretty early in your combat career. D- just explain briefly where else you served and where else you saw combat. Well, I was in the Gulf War. I finished that out, and I've also spent time uh, in uh, the Bosnia-Kosovo con- conflict with the, the Kosovo conflict flying uh, military intelligence missions uh, for that. And with more combat experience, do you feel the same way, that it was wrong for the commanders to just fire on these guys and not try to get them to surrender? No, actually, my view has changed quite a bit. It's done almost a 180, and uh, I, I feel now that what we did was right, um, that we weren't actually murdering people unnecessarily. We were soldiers, they were soldiers. There's risk, they knew what the risk is. Uh, people that haven't been exposed, uh, they may may listen to those tapes and still feel like it was murder. Um, as I uh, grew a little bit more battle-hardened, um, I realized there's risks, and, the, and they were risks that those soldiers were willing to take. There were risks I, were, I was taking at the same time. It could have been me that was killed. This particular set of events on February 27th, 1991, has gotten a, a certain amount of press coverage. Seymour Hirsch wrote about it in The New Yorker. It was on ABC News. It's, it's gotten a certain amount of coverage. Do you feel like uh, the, the, the media's attention to it and the public's attention to it misunderstands it? Uh, the information that was put out in ABC News and the, the Hirsch article, I think, was kind of one-sided. Um, the, they used parts of my tape in the Hirsch article, and they took the tape out of context to kind of support what I felt was their point of view. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, they were trying to build a case that American soldiers had uh, killed innocent POWs um, illegally um, and that everybody knew what was going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's more of a deal if you have another My Lai massacre during the Gulf War than if you actually say – uh, that if prisoners were killed, it was because of lack of communication. It was almost like a friendly fire accident. If if they were killed, if they indeed were killed, I imagine it was a communication problem that took place and that the people that killed them, they wouldn't have done it intentionally, did not know that these were prisoners, did not know these people were not armed, and did not know they did not pose a threat. 
that the guys who were killing them never got word that these guys weren't That's armed. Right. And yeah, it's a, it's more of a story when we have American soldiers that are renegades out there, tr- intentionally killing enemy prisoners of war, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and that's not the case. If you sit there and you listen to the tapes and you listen to what was going on, there was a lot of confusion on the battlefield. And, and there's there's no proof, even with the scouts, uh, even though they felt like the prisoners could have been killed or they saw rounds exploding around them, uh, nobody actually saw anybody killed. John, do you have friends uh, who you served with in, the, in these particular fights who still feel like it was wrong to kill those guys? Yes, I do. And... Uh, and some of these people have had really difficult, a uh, real difficult time. Um, they do, they just never. Uh, some of them just have this sense of guilt where they, uh, they feel like they've killed people unnecessarily or were part of a team that killed people unnecessarily, and some of what we did was wrong. I've, I've struggled through that myself and. And I feel what we did was right and what we did was just and we did what we had to do. Uh, and I've moved on with my life. I was able to do that because I, I came to that conclusion. If I'd felt like I had murdered people on the battlefield, uh, I, I don't think I could live with myself. I think I would have a lot of uh, stress and grief and not be able to deal with a lot of issues. And I think that's basically what it comes down to. You've got to either rationalize what you've did or you're going to live with a lot of guilt. When you take a moment and you reflect on it, do you feel like there's a part of you that's rationalizing? I, I did my rationalization uh, some time ago, and I've made my decision on what I did was right, and I stick with it, and I've rationalized at that point. I think, uh, I think you've got to do that uh, uh, so you can live with yourself. John Brassfield now has a job as a flight instructor for civilians in Wichita, Kansas, He's also in the Army Reserve. Everybody, please follow the leader. What if the leader has a gun? Remember when you jump to the eight o'clock whistle? Battle is over, but the war goes on. Four, love story. Well, let's return to the guy whose recording we heard at the beginning of today's program, the percussionist who met the woman in Italy and who started sending her tapes. His name is David Kassen. He sent her over a dozen tapes after their week together, trying to convince her to please, please visit him in New York City. These tapes are such a complete portrait of a certain kind of quest and a certain feeling you get early in a relationship. And he agreed to let us play some excerpts here on the radio. David, um, I thought I would try to make you a little tape, give you a, a little tour or <laughs> a picture of um, how it is in New York. And I guess um, I will tune in and out with the events of my day. <laughs> and uh, I'm in my apartment. There's instruments everywhere here. A vibraphone, you know. Hopefully, one day you could uh, see all this. So, um, 
I will uh, turn off now and come back later and, and talk to you some more. I'm about to leave my apartment. So you'll hear Chinatown. Usually there's um, people hanging out in front of my building, like old Chinese ladies. So this is my neighborhood. Nice. <laughs> There's a bus here filled with the Chinese people going on a tour. And uh, this neighborhood's pretty residential. At nighttime, it's very quiet. In the daytime, there's a lot of uh, children. You can hear them from, from my apartment at lunchtime. They're out in the schoolyard playing. And uh, everything that I see... I think of you, so I thought I could just talk to you as I see you. You have to let me know if it's incredibly boring or if it's, uh, or if, or if you like this. So I'm going to a rehearsal today in Queens, close to my parents' house. Hey, I'm in my rehearsal and I'm sneaking, talking to you. Sandra, oh, I, I just read your letter. Wow. I finished reading the letter and I realized I wasn't even breathing while I was reading. I was holding my breath and I finished and I, I realized that I'm out of breath. Like I just ran like a, up a flight of stairs or, or something. I, I, was, oh, I, I miss you so much right now. And oh, please write me more. <laughs> it's very beautiful, very tender, and, and making me so happy. And you're great. You're great. You're great. I miss you. I love you. I really have fallen for you. So, oh, thank you so much. It was my first letter from you. And to know that, even though that was a week ago, my feeling is stronger and stronger. So thank you again. That was so nice. I feel so happy right now. Oh, I speak to you soon. Well, I just talked on the phone a little while ago, Sandra. And we'll we'll be okay. I feel I feel just it's just feeling, like it's not my thought, but it's I feel confident that everything will be fine. And um we see each other soon. So, I'm thinking about you. Oh, I couldn't just end like that. <laughs> I'm back. Ten minutes later than before. Um, wow, it's it's even it's even hard to say goodbye to you on a tape 
It's hard to say goodbye to you on the phone. Uh, I went back outside. So maybe I just record the sounds of outside for a moment. This is New York, where hopefully you will be soon. So David Kassen, who made these tapes, now joins us to explain first if they worked. Yeah, I mean, it's three years ago, and I, I, I guess they worked because I'm sitting in Italy right now with Alessandra. And how worried were you about how she would react to, to the first tape? Yeah, I was a little, I was a little worried uh, because um, it's a fine line between somebody who's intensely trying to connect with somebody with distance and you know, being a stalker or something. I've never really went after something like that before. Alessandra is the first and only person that I ever felt a strong need to keep being connected to on that level, especially for such a quick meeting. And Alessandra's sitting right there with you, right? Uh, yes. Could yes. you put her on? Oh, sure. Hold on one second. <laughs> Hello? Hi, Alessandra. Hi. So could I ask you to, to talk about what it was like get, getting the first of these tapes? It was tender. It was really feeling again the presence of somebody. Before you got the tapes, did it seem like such a serious thing that it happened between you and him? Um, I have to say, it, it was serious because it was intense. Like, it was something we, we met and we had a wonderful, incredible week. Something really special happened. But then maybe I started more than him. I started to be more, you know, rationalistic. I, I started to to step uh, again uh, on earth, you know. And uh, yeah. so all this was like a romance, but I was uh, rationally thinking, oh, I'm in Rome, he's in New York, you know. And uh, those tapes uh, helped to continue the romance. And uh, and I think this was where, when I actually consciously felt in love with him. I, I became aware of that. And uh, this helped me to believe in that love, you know? Yeah. You know, it was easy in that situation to be scared and to try to, to hide from, you know, your own feelings or your own state of mind. On the tapes, he worries about being too intense or being too boring. Mm-hmm. Were there moments of the tapes that struck you that way? No. No, I was never bored, and I never felt this was too much or too intense. Yeah, it was tender. I was always sorry when the tape finished. Hmm. I always would, would more. <laughs> and uh, I rewinded some parts, and I listened to some of these many times. He's so in love with you on these tapes. Mm. I guess, <laughs> I guess he was, and uh, and that's that's why it was so com- convincing, in a sense. I felt it was true, and it was uh, ir- irrese- irresistible. How can I say? I could not resist. Yeah, it was natural. 
really, you, you have the sensation your destiny was changed. I guess every love story starts in the same way, in a sense. Alessandra and David are now married. In the years since we first broadcast this story, they've had a daughter named Nina, who just turned four. Send me some love. Today's show is produced by Jonathan Goldstein and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Wendy Doran, Starley Kine, our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production up for today's show by Brian Reed. Special thanks today to Jonathan List, Nick Garcia, and Sonny Nieder. Music up today from Adam, the tape guy, Jacobs, and from Edward Lifson. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to all of our shows for absolutely free, sign up for our free podcast, or check out all the merch in our online store. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight by our boss, Tori Malatia, who keeps showing up at my house dressed as a pizza, saying, I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. My, my days are so-